0: You may be seated. Again, today we have just a few short readings to introduce our sermon topic. On page 10 in your bulletin, and notice the diagram across the page, which I think you've seen before. First in Proverbs 14, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 19, Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 22, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. And finally from Jesus in Matthew 5, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for the moving of your spirit now, Father, with your word. In Jesus' good name. Amen. <clears throat> what kind of father do you, would you think I am? If as you watched me with my kids over the years, it became obvious that the only thing I cared about, really, when it came to my children, was when they finally made their first million. That was the thing for me. That's what I talked about. That's what I got juiced about. You know, everything in their lives is kind of valued in relationship to that. You know, Andrew learned to walk. Well, that's good because he needs to walk to make his million. Okay, you learned how to paint. Well, you know, can she make a million painting? Like, this is always the thing. Just always about that first million. Everything. You know, I think if you watch that and you realize that was like for real with me, you'd say, Ben, you're not a dad. You're an assembly line manager, man. (laughs) You're treating your kids like they're widgets on this mechanical process line that's all about a product, and you are just missing all of the ways that you can just stop and and all the opportunities to just stop and enjoy just the goodness of your children and to tend the growth that may not make a lot of money, but it's just all the wild, wonderful ways that children grow. And, you know, I wonder how many of us think that God is kind of like that. I think it's sometimes easy to think that all God really cares about, all he really cares about, is that I believe exactly what you have to believe to go to heaven someday. And I obey certain rules that show that I am serious about getting ready to go to heaven someday. And that's what God really cares about. I mean, you know, there are other things in our life, but that's what matters to God. Pretty exclusively. Heaven and hell are the big things. The rest of it's kind of like meh. You know, the biblical view is so very different of our Father in heaven. What I've been trying to unpack in this series is that God made every feature of your humanity to image his glory. All of of the humanity that is you, God made it to image his glory. He made the fullness of your humanness, all of it, to be full of his life, to be in fellowship with him and with your fellow creatures. God loves all of you in the fullness of your humanness, because he made all of that humanity to be his own. And he, I mean, let's not miss this, <laughs> he paid his son's blood to free all of your humanity from the rule of sin and the rule of death. That's, that's God's love for you. And so we've been kind of walking through some of the features of our humanity. We've thought about how God relates to these different features, how, he, how his love Speaks to the ear, how his love fills the heart, how his love meets us in every table, in every clock and calendar, in every work that our hands find to do, in every penny in our purse. And today I'd like to just talk about another feature of our humanness. I want to talk about our Father's love, God our Father's loving interest in that firecracker that every one of us has inside of us. I've called it the temper and the fuse, whether it's a long fuse or a short fuse for you, that burns toward that firecracker inside of you. I want to talk today about anger, but I actually want to talk about anger in the company of our emotions. The older word was passions more generally. So I want to talk about anger as a passion and emotion, but I want to talk about it in the company of all of our emotions and passions. And if you look at the diagram there on page 11, um, you might remember this diagram. It's kind of the an attempt to picture kind of what we are in, 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 as humans. And I want to begin today by talking about anger as a window on the passions. Anger as a window on the passions. And just looking at that diagram, you can see the kind of four quadrants. And the upper two quadrants, this diagram kind of reminds us that God made us, first of all, with souls, right? The, the, the non material part of us. And, and if you look at the two quadrants, you can see in the upper left, that our souls know things. God gave us an intellect, and we can know in our souls, and we can, on the right quadrant on top, we can, we, can, we can desire, not just know, but desire. God gave us a will that desires and chooses, and our souls both know and love, know and choose. But God also gave us bodies, didn't he? And the lower two quadrants remind us that we have bodies, and bodies like our souls also know. They don't know intellectually, they know through the senses, And they also experience, in the lower right quadrant, they experience, our bodies experience, a range of desires, right? Think about the desires or appetites of your soul. Thirst, if you ever have felt like extreme thirst, you know what this feels like, Well, your body is craving something. We call that an appetite. But also, our bodies experience feelings about things that we encounter in the world. If you've ever felt... And I use that term on purpose. Have you ever felt actual fear? I mean, it, it physically is going on inside of you. It, it, it's, it's, it's almost like you're physically almost controlled by it in that instant of freezing or whatever your reaction is physically. Our bodies have feelings. Well, we talked about, you know, desires and appetites in connection with the table a few weeks ago, but now I just want to think about this strange world of feelings or emotions or passions. I'm kind of using those terms more or less interchangeably. And some of these feelings are very positive, some of them are very negative, but I just want to think about those. Again, anger is a window on the passions. And just some general observations for starters. And you, you'll, you'll relate to these things in your experience. General observations about our passions, our feelings, our emotions, anger in particular. One is, you'll notice, we have a remarkable diversity of emotions, don't we? Quite a range of passions. Think about this, week. Think about some of your emotions and passions. We have love and we have hate, right? We have... Delight and sorrow. We have hope. We have despair. We have confidence. We have fear. We have anger that kind of stands by itself. A whole range. Humans are complex, beautifully complex. But another observation would be that these feelings, if you think about them, these emotions or passions, they are e- affected both by the activities of the soul and the experiences of the body. And, and you, you know this is true from your own experience. Obviously, there, your emotions are affected by stuff happening in your soul, that rational part of you that thinks. Your thoughts affect your feelings, right? The way you think, the way that you believe, stuff that's going on in your head, it cer- certainly does you know, flow into your emotional life. But it's also really important to know that emotions are affected by experiences that your body has, especially experiences that weaken your body. Any of you who have ever experienced mental health know what this is like, mental health problems. Um, like Psalm 22 is a description. It's very interesting. Notice the language of, of the kind of body and emotion. So the psalmist, and remember, this is pointing forward to Jesus. The psalmist says, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Now that is picturing Jesus Physical and emotional experience on the cross, but notice there that the bones being out of joint and the withering of physical strength results in the heart feeling like it is melted like wax. Things that weaken your body will affect your emotions. You know, trauma would be, of course, the example of that. And Jesus actually experienced this. But having made those two observations about just the diversity of emotions and, and how the soul and body affect our emotions, I want to go deeper now, and I want to use anger, again, as a kind of test case. It's a very good test case for how emotions or passions work, how God made them to work, and what God intends for our emotional lives as our loving Father. So we're still here under anger as a window on the passions, and I want to just give you a few further, more specific observations about anger in particular, but passions and emotions more generally. The first thing is that all passions or emotions are a response to a good or an evil. All of our passions or emotions are a response to a good or an evil. Think about those passions I just mentioned. Love is a a sense of being attracted to what is good. Now you could be wrong that it's not, it might not actually be good, but if you perceive something as good, there's a love and a desire and you're drawn emotionally toward it, and hate, the, the, the passion of hate, is being revolted by something that is evil. And actually, hate is even moved to destroy that which is evil. Or delight. Delight is a response to a good that is possessed, whereas sorrow is an emotional response to the pain of a good that's been lost. Hope is looking off to a future good and responding to it, whereas despair is responding to a future from which that good is absent. Confidence is feeling secure in the face of a looming evil, whereas fear is feeling powerless and vulnerable in the face of a looming evil. But every one of these is responding to a good or an evil, and God made us to feel in response to good and evil. I want you to, I want you to really like kind of take that on board. There's a, sometimes a Christian suspicion of emotion. God made us, if you do not feel in response to good and evil, there's something actually wrong with you. Jesus had emotions, There's a wonderful article that B.B. Warfield once wrote called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's well worth looking at because emotion then is part of how we actually image God himself. Now, I want to be really careful here because God does not have emotions because God does not change. God is unmoved. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is beyond the realm of of change. And so God is never in reaction to anything. Nothing moves God. But it is interesting that when this God who is beyond the creaturely realm has no time, no space, no change, when that God, being quite actually beyond our comprehension, when he describes how he relates with good and evil down here in our creaturely realm, I'm using up and down sort of like metaphorically, you realize. When God... Outside of creation, he is beyond creatureliness. When he talks to us about how he relates to good and evil in our time-space world of change, you will notice in the Bible that how the language God uses is emotion language. He uses emotion terms that we can relate to. You think about in, in Genesis 6 when God saw the world full of evil and we're told it grieved him at his heart. Now, God does not have a psychological makeup anything like ours, but when he wants to tell us who knows exactly what it is like in God because we're not God, we can't know. But if you want to get an idea of what it's like in God's godness as he relates with good and with evil, in that case, in our world, the best language to understand that would be that feeling of grief you have to your inmost heart. And God uses that emotional language as a way of kind of helping us get a little you know, shadowy idea of what, what it is that, that's going on in his godness. And anger, especially... Anger, especially, images God's hatred of evil. There's a few lines from David Powelson's very helpful book, Good and, Good and Angry. He says, Anger is the fighting emotion, anger is the justice emotion, anger is the deliver the oppressed from evil emotion. It stems from love for the needy. All of us come wired with a sense of justice. Your sense of justice can be bent in many directions for good or ill, but you cannot erase it. (laughs) I would insert, you, you, you surely should not erase it. That is a moral weakness if you have no sense of justice. It is part of the original equipment in human nature. The image of God is the shorthand way of describing the way we were all meant to be. You identify something wrong and harmful, it matters. You are created to get upset about it. You speak and act forcefully to address the problem. When human beings work this way, it's beautiful. It's constructive. Our anger is natural. It's a capacity given by creation in the image of God who is just. Now, I don't need to tell you that is only half of the story. There's a whole hell that develops out of sinful human anger. But just notice that that response to evil is a way we image God. All passions and emotions respond to good or evil. Now, a second thing. You'll notice as you think about your emotional life that passions move us. They move us. Feelings, emotions, they move in us and they create movement in us. There's a reason we call them emotions, right? And anyone who's ever experienced powerful emotions, powerful passions, you know it can feel sometimes like you are literally riding a herd of wild horses. (laughs) And this brings us to a little bit of a mystery about our emotional lives, which is that we can sometimes feel as emotion is moving in us, we can feel like we are both the mover and the moved. You ever felt like that? Anger is like that for me. Or fear can be like this, or grief can be like this. And when you're feeling wrath, or you're feeling fear, or you're feeling just heart-wrenching sorrow and grief, You know, it's weird because I know these emotions are me. Like, I'm the horses. (laughs) It's Ben who's angry. It's Ben who's shaking with fear. It's Ben who's just, you know, in in, in anguish. I'm the horses, but it's strange because even though nobody is making me feel anything, I can never, ever say, you made me feel anything. No, the emotions are my emotions. They're happening inside of me, and yet I'm being swept by them. Anxiety attack, anyone? You ever had this? It just feels like you're being carried along. And part of the reason for that, that movement, that power of that movement, is that emotions are not, as I said, they are not just responses of your intellect or your will. They are also responses of your body. Sometimes if you have experienced, like, wrenching grief, you find yourself sobbing in anguish, and it's happening way out, outside of anything particularly rational that you're thinking. You are just, you are just broken or depression is like this. You guys know I deal with quite a lot of depression. One of the strange things, strange things about depression is that you can have a feeling of such sadness you could just sit and weep like a child and yet if you ask me what's going on intellectually, I'm actually not even quite sure what's wrong. Because their emotions are, 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 are part of the body as well as connected to the soul. And that's part of why they're so powerful. And when you take account then, beloved, how sin, this thing we call sin, our rebellion against God, how that has warped our responses to good and evil or even our perception of good and evil you can actually think something is evil that's good or something that is good that is evil like sin does that and it warps our responses and when you think about how the if just the general effects of sin in this world have weakened our bodies so we don't have the strength to respond sometimes the way we ought to respond you can see how emotions can quite literally just run wild And that brings us to a third thing. All passions are a response to good or evil. They move us, thirdly and importantly, they can move us inordinately in a disordered way. Now, we may be the first society in the history of societies, unfortunately, that has dogmatized this notion that if you feel something, it must be true and it must be good because that is you. That feeling is authentically you, right? That's sort of dogma in our time. But in history, and certainly in the biblical thought world, there was wisdom <laughs> wisdom to acknowledge that feelings, human feelings, like human appetites, are supposed to be oriented toward what is actually good. It is possible to have a feeling of attraction to what is actually evil and destructive. It is possible to have a feeling of revulsion from what is good and wholesome and, and honorable and noble. So, there has to be an orientation to what is actually good or the feeling is disordered. And let us suppose that our feelings are rightly aimed at what is good and rightly aimed at what is wrong. So we have the right emotion toward what is good and the right emotion towards what is evil. Let's suppose we've even got that straight. The other thing that, we, that you see as you read in history and in the Bible is that even if you've got the, the orientation right, there is to be a measuredness and orderliness in how You respond even to a legitimate good or a legitimate evil, and anger is the classic test case here, isn't it? Because you can be angered by an injustice. Something wrong has happened, and I am angered by it, but how often, beloved, do you find your anger as you respond to the injustice is creating more injustice? There is disorder in the way you're responding, and you're actually now feeding into the very scenario of injustice that you're reacting to. I can put this a bit more concretely. Disordered passions or inordinate passions, basically, they're too fast, too much, or too long. That's probably the simplest way to remember this. Our passions, our emotions, get to be too fast, too much, too long. Anger, again, shows this. Your anger is decreasingly righteous. My anger is decreasingly likely to be righteous as it increases speed. The faster your fuse goes off, the less likely it is your, your anger is righteous. Speed to wrath is never a virtue. Slow, do you see all these texts? I mean, I, just, I, I read them. Slow to anger shows great understanding. Hasty temper, you're gonna exalt folly. Proverbs 15, he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16, whoever is slow to anger, listen, is better than the mighty. He who can get a brake system on his spirit is better than the one who can take down a city. Good sense makes you slow to anger. Anger should not be fast. And anger can be too much. I mean, parenting has taught me this. I mean, I'm just in disbelief sometimes at how outsized my anger is in response. You know, that kid drops something on the floor and you're just like erupt. It's just way too much. Way too much. You can overreact to injustice. You know, the bully makes a snide comment, you break his nose. You overreacted too much. And obviously, too long. Anger can just be, you know, and other passions too, but anger can be too long. Anger can burn inside of you long after you should be over it, long after it should have subsided. Now you're just bitter. Now you're just full of, that's that's inordinate, disordered passion. And that's why Jesus, that's why I put this Matthew 5 text in. It's why Jesus tells us very, very directly, if you're going to kill sin, if you're going to kill sin, you have got to get upstream from the actions to the heart oh, I've never murdered anyone, pastor. Jesus is not impressed. He is not impressed. Because the root of the thing is the passion. The root of the thing is the emotion. And it's interesting that Proverbs 16 tells us to really get a bridle on your passions, to get your emotions under control may require more strength of you than the feats of actual physical warfare. To get a hold of that thing inside of you that is so ready to go to war with people and so ready to like just blow them away and so ready to just hang on to stuff long after you should have let it go. That thing inside of you, to get that under control and to rule that and to indeed kill it and to bring it under the, the, the rule of the Holy Spirit and to, to offer it to God for righteousness, you, know, you might better take a city in war. It's hard. And because the body is involved in our emotions, it is important to remember that as we're dealing with those emotions and passions within, you cannot just think your way to different emotions. This, I think, is one of the things that the church has taught that is just wrong, and it's really misled some people, that somehow all you need to have a different emotional life is different beliefs. You know, the right catechism. You know, straighten out your ideas. As if rational, a, rational, a purely rational approach to, to, to emotions, it's going to change emotions because they're not entirely, you know, intellectual. If you're really going to retrain your, your emotional life, your, the, your, the passions that God has given you, you have to not only retrain your mind and your beliefs, but you have to train different habits. You have to have different bodily practices. There's, it's, not, it's not foolishness that once <laughs> pointed out, if you count to 10, you'll, you'll, have a, you'll have a better success in dealing with your anger. Like, you gotta slow your body down. And the last thing I'll just point out about passions, before we move on to something else quickly, is just that they're social. Uh, so, you know, they, they move us, they move us inordinately, but they are also social, because you'll notice that you should not make friendship with an angry man. He will change you. Passions are social. Our passions rouse each other's passions for good or for ill. I've seen this in reactive families. You know, I've, I've worked with households that are, they are out of control because passion ignites passion, ignites passion, ignites passion, ignites passion, to the point where working with some of these families, I've found my own passions getting disordered. I've had times when I hang up from dealing with a reactive family, and I can feel my own emotional life has been, I'm I'm getting disordered inside because of just this reactivity. Passions are social, and I would encourage you, those of you who are young, man, make this just an ironclad rule. Your inner circle of friends You can relate to all different people, but your inner circle of friends, make sure these are people who are self-governed and gracious. I do not mean passive. I do not mean weak. I mean self-governed and gracious. You hang out too much with someone whose passions are out of control. It will change you. Now, having said that about sort of anger as a window on the passions in general, I want now to turn more quickly now, but I do want to take a moment with this, and I'd just like to speak for a little bit about practicing emotional holiness. Practicing emotional holiness. I heard that phrase some years ago and it really stuck with me. Our emotional lives are to be holy. They are to be a place where God dwells. Our emotions are to be full of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice how many of the fruit, when the fruit of the Spirit is listed, how many of them are emotional? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Our emotions are to be Holy. They are to be mature. They are to be healthy. And like all health, emotional holiness begins upstream from the episodes that arouse your passions. If you wait until that moment of confrontation, or that moment of whatever it is, fear or what grief or whatever, you know if, if you're waiting until crisis to, to figure out how to respond in an emotionally holy and healthy way, it's too late. You've got to begin upstream. Maybe I can say that another way. Emotional holiness requires food, not just medicine. See, we're a generation that wants to live on medicine. You need food, not just medicine. You've got to feed your emotions, not just medicate them in the moment of crisis. Are you with me? So I want to give you a couple of practices to feed, to nourish emotional holiness. The first is this. May I urge you, beloved, to meditate on the tenderness of your Lord. Meditate on the tenderness of your Lord. Now, as soon as I say the word tender, some of you guys, you macho guys are thinking, yeah, this is the effeminate hippie Jesus. I'm not talking about the effeminate hippie Jesus. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I once had the privilege of watching a father doing a a game of pika roar with his probably eight or nine month old son. You ever play pika roar? Can't see me. And this little guy was eating it up. You know, the, the the chubby little knees are kicking, and he's squealing, and he's excited, and, and the dad's, you know, this is a big, powerful man. He's just roaring in his son's face. You know, his son's on the bed, and, oh, this is just, you know, the son is just getting all worked up. And there came this moment in this episode when the father turned, and he, 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 he said, he was laughing his full head off, and he said, should I be more tender with him? Should I be more tender with him? As the son was just getting so... Worked up, why, what's going on there? The father realized the point of this pico-roar game is enjoyment, it's playfulness, and I would never want this little guy to feel that my strength or my roar is gonna hurt him. Should I be more tender with him? That's Jesus. Because Jesus, in all of his infinite power, in the perfection of his holiness and goodness and purity, in his awesome majesty as the warrior king who will bring his enemies under his feet. Listen to how he describes himself. He says, come learn of me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your emotions because my yoke is kind, my burden is light. The Bible speaks of our hearts, including our emotions, being rooted and grounded in love, nourished, settled, ordered by our Savior's love toward you. And I wish I could say each of your names. Toward you, toward you, Jesus is gentle. And he's lowly. Do you know what that means? He puts himself at your level. He knows who you actually are, what you're actually. He knows knows everything about your makeup, your frailties, your circumstances. He puts himself at your level. And that's where he relates with you, like the father being careful that at my little baby's level, I'm not causing him fear. Beloved, we need to ponder that. We need to ponder that. And some of you are probably. Wondering if I have been reading Dane Ortland's recent book, Gentle and Lowly. I have. You should, too. It's quite a book. Jesus is gentle, and he puts himself at our level. And I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're thinking about my sin. You know, that baby is not a sinner. The father's not dealing with sin. Jesus is dealing with my sin all the time. My sin, that's what makes a difference. Do you ever, ever, ever pay attention when you read the story of the prodigal son? What is the father's heart in dealing with that wretched rebel of a child? Don't you see that God hates your sin because he loves you? Beloved, don't you see that that's what the cross means? I hate what separates you from me so much, I hate it this much? Portland puts it this way. Jesus sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. We understand this when we consider the hatred a father has against the terrible disease afflicting his child. The father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out his heart to his child all the more. That's how Jesus looks at your sin. Now, this is not to ignore the disciplinary side of Christ's care for his people, but even the discipline is a reflection of his great heart for us. When a body part's been injured, it requires the pain and labor of physical therapy. But that physical therapy is not punitive, it's, not in, it's intended to bring healing. That's why God disciplines you, because He wants to heal you, to make you a partaker of His holiness. And you know, the alternative to believing that, the alternative to being nourished on the tender love of your Father and your Savior towards you, it is what Ortland calls emotional law ishness. You ever met anyone who's emotionally law ish? They don't really resonate with love. They resonate with law. It's an emotional life in which your responses are dictated by this transactional justice thing. Your, Your emotional life is kind of driven by a series of debits and credits rather than by this much deeper and more beautiful thing which is that I am yours and you are mine. And I am disposed to cover your sin and be gracious to your sin and walk with you in your sin and care for you in your sin. And I love Ortland's description of what happens to people's emotional lives when they do not walk in the love and tenderness of Jesus. He says there is an entire psychological substructure that is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging, fear stuffing, nervousness, scorekeeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety festering silliness. That is not something so much we say or even think as something we exhale. You can smell it on people, though some of us are good at hiding it. And if you trace this fountain of scurrying haste, in all of its various manifestations down to the root, you don't find childhood difficulties or a Myers-Briggs diagnosis or Freudian impulses. You find gospel deficit. You find lack of felt awareness of Christ's heart. All the worry and dysfunction and resentment are the natural fruit of living in a mental universe of law. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest wholeness, flourishing, shalom, that existential calm that for brief gospel-sane moments settles over you and lets you step in out of the storm of lawishness. You see this in friendship. You see this in marriage. You see this in parenting. You see this in pastor parishioner relationships. You see it. It's just love settles emotions. You know what else it does? It changes suffering. It really changes suffering because when you know the love of Christ, you know the heart of Christ, it just takes all the sting out of, of judgment, out of, out of things that happen to you. You suffer, but there's no judgment in the, in the suffering. And when you, you're, in, you're in that suffering with Jesus, and you know, when you're with Jesus, you kind of expect to suffer. If you're going to be with Jesus, guess what? Jesus suffered, and you're going to suffer if you're with Jesus, and you kind of expect it, but the difference is you suffer with him. Orland says, the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. The more chains, the more my chains are in Christ. Because at every moment in that suffering, when you know he loves you, you know he is gentle and he comes to your level, that means in this suffering that I am facing, however wrenching it may be, my Lord knows what's going on. He cares for me here the bible says he feels for me here beloved he is touched with the feeling of my infirmity he rules this he will use this someday i will say with joseph what other people meant for evil god meant for good and so it is possible even in the worst of suffering to count it all joy to have emotional holiness even in suffering but beloved you've got to meditate on this You have got to meditate on this. You have got to read books and sermons. I've got a little six-page sermon by Robert Murray McShane that I read in 1994, and I keep that little sermon. It's called The Love of Christ, and I read it every once in a while because it keeps me sane. You need to have certain scriptures you go back to. You need to have conversations together to meditate on the love of Christ, meditate on the tenderness of your Lord. The last thing, second and last thing, and I'm almost done, another practice for emotional holiness. Accept the freedom Accept the freedom of bodily limits. Accept the freedom of bodily limits. You know, often disordered emotions are a reminder that God gave me a body, that body has limits, and I don't think I'm honoring those limits. It is emotionally freeing to say the words, I can't. That's not irresponsible. Sometimes I literally can't. I like looking at little children's hands. They're so, they're so fragile. And I look at my hands, and I have big, you know, strong man hands, but I'm reminded sometimes in the big scheme of the world, my hands are much more like that little child's hands, just not strong enough for that. I can't do that. God has not given me the ability. Or maybe it's not so much that I literally can't, it's just that I'm already doing what God has told me to do, so I can't. And there's something about being able to say, I have limits, I can't, that just frees you emotionally. And to be able to say another limit, I need. Sometimes I don't need to go have a spiritual high, I need a meal. I need a good night's sleep. I need physical presence. Jesus was like this. Jesus got tired. He needed to sleep. He needed to withdraw and be by himself. He, he needed his disciples to show up for him in the garden. That's, that's, sometimes it's just freeing to say, I need. That's not self-indulgent. It's humble. It's recognizing I'm not self-sustaining. I am not God or God-like. I'm a Fragile physical little thing, and it leads to, 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 to the freedom of gratitude because God, why has God given so many good gifts to us to be received, to be enjoyed, to be refreshing, to be nourishing, and to be delighted in with thanksgiving. And I think, you know, with anger, a lot of anger stems from a kind of grandiosity. Trying to be too much, trying to do too much. I'm the lawgiver, I'm the judge, I'm the savior, I'm the fixer, I'll move the mountain. No, you, you know, with all due respect. No, no, you won't. Accept the freedom of the bodily limits. You, you're, you're a tiny little thing. You have zero control. Get over yourself, like for real. It's interesting that James, when he's talking to people who are fighting all the time, fighting and quarreling, listen to what he says. He says, you need to be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. I love Joe's, Joe Amato's word. Right-size yourself before the Lord. And he will exalt you. You know, today's the first Sunday in Lent. And one of the purposes of Lent, of fasting, is to bring us back to feel in our very bodies how limited and lowly we actually are. And in that way, to right-size us into childlike freedom and joy once again. If you want emotional holiness, you must embrace your limits. That's all I'm going to say. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless these things that our emotional lives before you may be holy as you, the Lord our God, are holy. In our good Savior Jesus' name we pray, amen.